Our text this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 12 through 17. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, and earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We confess and believe that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the day of the Lord, and the man whom God has called stands up and speaks the word and preaches it aright, that your Holy Spirit enters into that process and your living word goes forth to your people. Father, let not my sin, let not my inadequacy, let not my foolishness, Stand in the way of that. Minister your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We've all seen those male and female romantic relationships where the man and the woman are admirably matched. And it's obvious that they love each other. And they show this by their affection and their thoughtfulness to each other. They are quick to overlook offense and reconcile. And as a pastor, when I see a couple like that, I tend to feel confident even if they have to come to me and, uh, and ask me for something. I feel confident when I perform those weddings and when they come later on and say, hey, we're having a little bit of a rough patch in our marriage. Could you help us out? Um, I think that that's wonderful because you know you've got a basic posture of goodwill and these two people love each other and they're committed to each other. Uh, I have uh, some friends uh, back in South Dakota. He's the PCA minister in uh, Rapid City. His name is Art, and his wife is Janet. And they're a very good example in my mind of what I'm talking about. They're just admirably matched. They're devoted to each other. They're happy in each other. Art has Janet's heart. Janet has Art's heart. But then there are other relationships that I have occasion to observe, and they take many different forms, but they're all only variations on two themes. Either one party in the relationship has given his or her heart, or neither party in the relationship has given his or her heart. When those kind of people come to me with those kind of relationships, the second one is actually the easiest to see and the easiest to deal with. This is a relationship that's simply tied together by sex or money or convenience or something like that, and it just won't stand the test of time. And it will kind of maybe be a tragedy when it dissolves, but it's a tragedy while it's 
uh, still intact as well. And, and of course, if children are involved, then it's even more difficult and more of a tragedy. The hardest ones to deal with as a pastor who counsels people are the ones where one party has given their heart and one party hasn't. And that's probably, honestly, the most common counseling situation that I run into. One wants to love and be loved, and the other wants to control and be served. And they say to each other things like, why aren't you doing what I want you to do for me? right now. And it's really, it's about evenly split between men and women who are kind of pathological in this way. Whenever you have a love relationship where hearts are not freely given to each other, then what you've got is a love relationship in name only. I mean, it may say Mr. and Mrs. X on the checks in the checkbook, and both names will be on a marriage certificate somewhere, and there will be all kinds of nice photographs hanging on the wall, but all of it's kind of a sham. The external observable things are all there, but the internal reality is not present. Isn't it interesting that the Lord God often uses the, the picture of marriage to talk about his relationship with his people? As it is between two people, so it is between a person and his or her God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9, God says of His people, the ones who call themselves His, He says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me and to keep all of My commands always, so that it might go well with them forever. Jesus laments this same phenomenon in Matthew 15 verses 8 and 9. He says, These people honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. They worship Me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. This is the distinction that lies behind the great divide in what we might call the Christian religion. The issue is the attitude and the disposition of the heart. And that is what distinguishes between a person who is saved and a religious lost person. The Lord God wants your heart, first and foremost. He does not want your tongue unless it comes with your heart. Because all you'll have for Him is empty words. He does not want your hands unless they come with your heart. That just leads to pride and self-righteousness. He doesn't want your prayers or your singing or your acts of service or your money or anything else unless those things are preceded by you giving Him your heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16, we have a blueprint of what it looks like to sincerely Offer your heart to the Lord. What does the Lord your God require of you? The text tells us to ask. And the first thing that the Lord requires of us is fear. Fear of the Lord. And we talked about this a, a few weeks ago. We, we distinguished between the kind of fear that a Christian should never have and the kind of fear that a Christian should have. The old theologians called it the difference between servile fear and filial fear, the respect that a child should pay his or her parents, his or her father in particular. And God says, I want you to fear me. 
If you refuse to approach this God as he is, as the great high sovereign emperor of the universe, if you do not approach his holiness while trembling for your own sin and your own unworthiness, if you do not approach him with the stark realization that were it not for Christ's blood covering you, you would be an object of his immense wrath, if you do not approach him as one who owes you nothing, but whom you owe everything, then he does not have your heart. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18 that the mark of the lost person is that there is no fear of God in their eyes. Is your heart his? Then fear him. What does the Lord require of you? Second of all, walk with him. It is a recognition that the Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's a journey from birth to death. You and I are all on one journey or another, and God wants His children to walk with Him every step of the way of that journey. The religiously active unbeliever doesn't walk with God. The religiously active unbeliever walks in his own path. And he might check in with the Almighty from time to time just to make sure that he's still available. They might show up to where God is at just to try and assure themselves that everything's okay. They go to church for an hour on Sunday and then they walk their own path the rest of the week. And it doesn't even have to be a particularly wicked path. It's just a path apart from the Lord. God says in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Not so of the child of God. The child of God wants to walk every moment, every step with the Lord. The child of God craves the constant companionship of the Lord. There was a, a Christian singer who died a number of years ago, but his music just keeps living on, and I really enjoy it. His name was Rich Mullins, and he wrote a wonderful song about this that was based on Psalm 63. We've sung it once. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. And of course, in seeking to walk with God, you recognize that God is not going to walk in any path that is contrary to His character. And that means when you walk with God, you walk in His paths. It's, so many times, friends, the gospel is pitched as God will help you with whatever projects in life you're trying to get done. No, no. The gospel is lay down your own projects. Trust Him with all that and come and follow Him. Be born again. Step into the kingdom and follow Him. Walk with Him in the easy yoke with the light burden, and He will give you the rest that you crave. So you've got to walk in His paths. You don't try and drag Him along on yours. What does the Lord require of you? Number three, to love Him. To love Him. I'm, I'm working on a, a sermon series this fall. I, I've had a wonderful time of studying this summer and, and uh, encountered some stuff that some 
theological material. And it's related to psychology and brain science and all these other kinds of things. And, uh, and, and the key to everything in your life going right is just to love God. If you just really love God, everything else will click into place sooner or later. That's all you got to do. Love God. That's it. The true child of God loves God, and he or she wants to be close to God and wants to please God because God is the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the best, the most excellent thing he or she has ever seen. And to walk with him in his kingdom is like a pearl of great price. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It awakens tremendous desire. And you see that life with this God is just good. In every way, it's just good. And that the life apart from God is just slop and pain and dysfunction and everything else. But you got to love Him. Or you won't be able to see it. The child of God enjoys God. Enjoys prayer. Enjoys time in the Word. Because that is where God is brought most close in a reliable way. The child of God prefers God's love before any other lesser love and recognizes that the love relationship with God is an eternal and lasting one and is therefore more important than any other relationship and any other love. And out of that love grows something else. What does the Lord require of you? To serve the Lord with your whole heart and your whole soul and to keep his commands. Over and over again, the Bible warns us that those who say they love God and yet freely disobey God regularly and with an untroubled conscience don't actually love God. Jesus says it really plainly in John 14, 15, doesn't he? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In a similar way, when the text teaches us that loving God and serving God go hand in hand, I think it's amazing to see how many people in the world think that God exists to serve them, that he exists for our sake, that he's, he's there to protect our children and keep the hurricanes away and make sure that we have a happy and a healthy and an untroubled life. But when things don't go as expected, the religious unbeliever turns on God quickly. Where was God when this happened? They demand to know. Rebellion and anger are the order of the day. Whereas the true child of God will express pain and loss, certainly. And he or she may ask God, why? Why is this happening? Because of our weakness, there may even be a period of disappointment or rebellion. But the child of God will always be brought around by the Spirit of God to a heart attitude that is quiet and submissive. Like a weaned child is my soul within me, says the psalmist. I'm at peace. Now, notice one final thing. God says that all of this is actually for our good. Our God is a God who desires our good. Listen to the old Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry. He says, It is really for our present good to be meek and humble and chaste and sober, just and charitable, 
patient and contented. These make us easy, safe, and pleasant, and truly great. And so comes the invitation in verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You know, the the foreskin covers the most sensitive part of the male body. And circumcision is a picture above all else of sensitivity to God. Or in the words of the New Testament, repent, be born again. A new life is within reach if you will simply admit that your heart is wrong. And it needs to be put right. And just come and walk with him. It's so simple. I'm sorry. I trust you. Your way of doing things is best. My way is wrong. I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to do what you say. And that's going to be my new pattern of life. That's all. That's it. That's all it takes. Repent. Come, walk with the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.